you know, most most adults do think that children need to be civilized. They need to be dominated in order to fit in or in order to get on in life. Like loads of people do think that. You're definitely in the minority in our culture if you believe that actually like another way is possible, that actually maybe like children are not in need of domination to grow, that they can grow in an environment where they're respected in this like respectful relationship that is two ways. I think where this, where sometimes that reaction can come of like, oh, you're just saying that children can do whatever they want. And like, you know, actually know they need to be told what to do. Like it's, that's a binary perspective really on this topic, because actually like what I work with is consent and consent isn't about someone just doing whatever they want to someone else all the time. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello once again, my fathomless friends, and welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to briefly share something really exciting with you, if I may. As many listeners will be aware, Two years ago or so, I published a book with my amazing friend Kate McAllister called Fear is the Mind Killer, which is a book essentially about how to teach self-regulated learning. And since then, we've worked with a number of schools, mainly internationally, because the current policy environment in England is really quite hostile to things like self-regulated learning and learning to learn. 15 years ago or so, there was lots of learning to learn happening in this country, but not so much. But internationally, that's not the case. So anyway, earlier this year, we received an email from the head teacher of a school in South Africa who was describing the challenges that he faced at his school and was very interested in pursuing a learning to learn type curriculum. And we ended up working quite intensively with that school over about a three month period. And we usually work in three ways when we help a school to set up a learning skills curriculum. We work with a core team of teachers to design and teach the learning skills lessons. We work with the whole staff on sharing understandings and the language and tools and strategies for developing self-regulated learning across the curriculum. And then the third element is that we focus on implementation science to work with a vertical size team, a cross-sectional team of people throughout the organization who have an oversight on making sure that this really works in the long term. And so, as I say, we worked quite intensively with them over a three-month period, and then they launched their learning skills curriculum in July. And then we had the summer break, and so we didn't hear from them for a couple of months. And then last month, we caught up with the learning skills team to ask them how it was going. And it was just unbelievable. The team essentially took turns to pass the laptop around the room, and each of them just shared their thoughts and feelings and experiences about what this learning skills curriculum had been like and the impact that it had had on them as individuals and on the young people. And honestly, it is ridiculous. The the feedback that they were sharing with us was absolutely astonishing. And so yesterday, I finally got around to clipping this video into short little bites. And there's a Twitter thread and there's a number of, I think, 12 little video clips on our website 
with these practitioners sharing the impact that this learning skills curriculum had. And if you want to feel uplifted, <laughs> I can ask you to look no further than these 12 short little video clips. Honestly, it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. So please do feel free to check those out should you feel so moved. There's lots more exciting stuff happening in the rethinking education world at the moment, which I'll share with you in forthcoming episodes, but time is in short supply at the moment. And so I'm just going to crack on with introducing today's guest, Sophie Christophie. This is actually a conversation that I recorded a couple of months ago for the Rethinking Education Conference, but it's such an important conversation that I wanted to share it via the podcast also. Regular listeners may recall that a recent episode, the final episode of season two, which I recorded in the summer, was with a guy called Johnny Hunt, a sex education specialist. And in that conversation, I started to think about consent, not just as it applies to sex education, but as it applies to education more generally. And this idea of consent-based education has been growing and growing in my mind in recent months. And the increasing sense of, of unease that I have about how coercive our education system is, is something that has just grown and grown. And I've spoken with Sophie a couple of times about this, and she says that once you go down the consent-based rabbit hole, as it were, there's no going back. So I'll share a bit of an introduction to Sophie from her website, um, for those of you who aren't familiar with her work. It says... Sophie Christophie is a culture transformer, feminist, unschooling parent and activist. She works on deconstructing patriarchy from childhood socialization in education and family culture and in organizational culture by creating a shift to principles of consent and self-direction. As a conduit for the emergence of a consent-based social and environmental paradigm, she works with individuals and organisations on de-schooling, integrating consent and self-direction-based principles into practice, and on enhancing authenticity, integrity and transparency by aligning beliefs with behaviour. She also works these principles in her own life. Sophie believes that consent-based self-direction is the key and pathway to self-actualization and transcendence, something that all humans have the potential to experience in their lifetime and to being in a right relationship with nature and the planet of which we are a part. Since 2017, Sophie has been running the consent-based education course working with people from all around the world on their transition from the dominant culture to this new emerging paradigm of consent-based education. In addition to this, she runs bespoke trainings and workshops and is a guest speaker on many topics, including consent-based education, of course, and the skill set that goes along with that, children's rights, ethical change-making and paradigm shifting, and she offers guidance for startup founders of consent-based, self-directed settings. In 2018, Sophie co-founded a consent-based, self-directed education setting called The Cabin for home-educated young people aged 5 to 11. To our knowledge, The Cabin is the first education setting for children in the UK to be explicitly designed through a lens of consent, self-direction and children's rights. It's also the first to identify itself as education positive, a transdisciplinary educational philosophy that breaks down traditional subject silos, hierarchies and gatekeeping 
and is instead curiosity-driven, problem-solving oriented and rooted in critical thinking and an open access approach to learning based on children's rights. And in 2021, just last year, she co-founded The Lodge, which is a follow-on setting from The Cabin, which is a community for young people up to the age of 16. And the thing that I really took away from this is that there is such a lot of thinking <laughs> and unthinking that needs to go into this transition from a very coercive education system to something that's more consent-based. Uh, and it's really quite a job of work that we have before us. But the other thing that I took away from this conversation is that this is not a binary switch. We can think of consent and coercion as two extremes on a continuum if you like and there are many many ways in which we can move more in a consent-based direction without having to flip the system completely which is kind of unimaginable in the way that it currently works. So <laughs> that's probably quite a mouthful of an introduction but there's lots and lots to get through here so without further ado I will hand over to my recent conversation with Sophie Christophie. I hope you enjoy the show. Sophie Christophie, welcome to this session. Thank you very much for agreeing to speak with me and to share your thoughts with the wider Rethinking Education Conference. It's a, great to be here, James. I'm really happy to have a chat with you today. And yeah, I'm I'm excited and curious about where it's going to go because we both know this is a big topic and there are loads of avenues to go down. So I'm excited to yeah find out where we end up. Yeah, in, indeed. And that, that topic being consent-based education. And so and so so before we get into that, um just for anyone who hasn't come across you or your work before, could you just do a quick sort of introduction as to who you are and, and the work that you do and, and how you sort of arrived at this this work that you do around consent-based education in particular? Yeah, sure. Um so my name's Sophie. I run, I co-run and co-founded two different um learning communities is probably a good description of them for um, home-educated young people um, that are based on guiding principles of consent and self-direction. And there's some other ones too, Ed Positivity, Children's Rights. Um, you can have a look on our website to see all of them. Um, but yeah, so I, I co-founded co and co-run and I work also in those settings as facilitator with the team. And um, as well as that, I work with parents and other adults who work with children or want for themselves to live a more consent-based life. Basically, they want to be in relationships in their families and in their work environments in a way that is more connected to themselves, more authentic and more ethical in their relating with other people and in their systems and ways of doing things in their organizational culture in a way. Um, yeah, so I work with them to support their transition basically out of our dominant culture, which is not like that, into this other way of being. Um, yeah, and I do that in groups through a process called the Consent-Based Education Course. And I run, so I've been running cycles of that now since 2017. I'm actually in the middle of one at the moment. I have a session tonight. Um, and that's with a small cohort of about 16 people. Um, and then I also work one-to-one -one with people as well. Um, 
yeah, so that's probably a decent description of my current work. Um, I also create consent-based self-directed spaces for adults as well as young people. So I've just come back from running a change maker writing retreat called Soulfire Writing Retreat, where we work with folk who want to make change in the world. And um, that whole setting is held in the same way that we hold the cabin and the lodge, which are our other places. So it's not just for young people. This is good for everyone. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, is that enough for now about that? Yeah. So, so I mean, I'm, I'm interested to, to, to know a little bit about how you arrived at this point. Uh, what, what was your background and how did you come to, to be interested in these things? Okay. So I've always been really interested in education, like kind of weirdly, even as a really young child, I was like observing I guess the environment that I was in in school and I like it's a little in my genes too my paternal grandfather was a head teacher in a like colonial type white school in Australia and my both of my parents have been teachers um one of my parents taught in the Australian outback in like a mixed class where you had ages from five up until 17 all in one little room together and my other parent has taught in secondary school teaching maths for a long time um so um, my ex-husband is a mainstream secondary school teacher. Many other folk in my family are teachers. So I've been like immersed quite a lot in the system, like from being a student myself to like the other people in my life. And then my own interests also sort of academically and otherwise have been quite focused on um, power dynamics, actually. So I did history at university and when I got to like make some choices about what that looked like I focused on like essentially the history of marginalized people like the underdogs history in a way and so that included like looking at the history of gender midwifery medicine there's all these different like systems right where you've got folk who have power over and other folk who experience that <laughs> that power being over them um, and I'm more interested in the ones that receive the power over them rather than the ones with the power um I think the ones with the power is the story that most of us hear so I want to hear the other one in a way yeah so that's part of my academic background was in that but then I suppose I came to this work really through having my own children um because when I had my daughter in 2010 it just made it was like a slap in the face as to how dysfunctional our culture is for children and young people, how in opposition to their own growth it is. It's like mind blowing. You know, all the things that children and young people need are like not present in the culture we hold for childhood. It's very strange. And I began to understand it as like a social justice issue, like a continuation of like patriarchy, essentially, in part of like social justice movement needs to factor in how children experience their lives from birth what they're taught and so on yeah can you can you sort of expand on that a little bit in terms of like so can you give me some examples of your the, the key sort of concerns that you had as a as a as a parent of a young child the the, the, the ways in which as you describe it that that society is not set up or the, the the structures that we have are set up that are in opposition to the interest of the child what, what do you mean by that yeah, sure. I mean, I think, first of all, it's worth noting that like humans in our culture are massively de-skilled in being parents. Most parents that I know, their babies arrived and they had no idea really what to do with them. I mean, there's like NCT classes that there to try and help. There's a whole like parent education industry that's designed to help parents to upskill like really quickly once they're either pregnant or have a baby. But culturally, we have like 
no, no or like extremely poor education around like how to be a parent and I and because of that I feel that we fall back on ways of being with children which are very like old and unhelpful so for example most parents I think don't understand that you can like partner with your baby you can listen to your baby that babies communicate you don't need to like use your power over them the, the strongest cultural messages that we get as parents is that you need to control your child and you need to control your baby from what they eat, how they eat it, how much they eat to when they sleep, where they sleep, how long they sleep, <laughs> you know, what, how and where they move their bodies, all these kinds of things. And, and you know, most children now, about 85% last time I checked the stats, are in an institutional childcare situation by the time they're one, you know, uh, or two you know I, I need to double check whether it is one or two but I'm pretty sure it is one and this is like new for our us as humans you know even in like when I was born the stats were flipped most were still with a primary care at that point but I mean this is a, another whole subject James you know so so one of them so so we're talking about outsourcing here so so would you say that like what was it 80 percent of kids by one are like in a nursery or in some sort of daycare yeah, they're not. They're basically no longer like most most babies and young children like are not growing with a dedicated like primary caregiver. Right. For most of the time of their days and their weeks. Right. They're in group environment, normally with other children at the same age as them. With not enough adults, basically, to provide really dedicated, like intuited, connected care and that's really when the process, in my opinion, starts of like us internalize, well, you know, children learning that their voice doesn't really matter, their bodily autonomy doesn't really matter, because it's very difficult in those environments to honor children's voices and to honor their bodily autonomy. It, they, it becomes very routine. For example, all the babies get their nappies changed on the hour or every hour. It doesn't matter when they have been to the toilet, it doesn't matter if their nappy is dirty or not, but in order to make sure that all the babies have clean nappies, they get changed in a routine way. Yeah, like food is routine because it's unmanageable otherwise, rather than being responsive to actually what is going on for the baby or the young person. Just mm. seen. Yeah. So this lack of personalization, this erosion of like the human self that is in the room, you know, all these little human beings that are learning about themselves and the world they live in. And this like bat-like echolocation, like what happens when I do this? What comes back to me? What happens when I do that? You start to build your sense of yourself and the world you live in, you know, what your options are, who, what your identity is. And um, like now, you know, it starts early that I think many children and young people essentially learn, like a, a create like coping strategies. You know, they're not able to be themselves fully because the relationships aren't right. And so they end up like living in a sort of like stress response or like adaptive ways of being, which hides like who they really are, you know, and that only continues once you get into school. Yeah, I see. So that's interesting. Because when I first asked that question, I thought you were going to talk about schools, but you were talking about something that's much wider than that culturally and in terms of the ways in which we parent parent kids. And you mentioned that it, that it was a patriarchal method of, of child rearing. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So like in patriarchal power systems in a family, for example, like traditionally it would have been like the, the dad is the God, unaccountable authority at the top. The mum is in service to that person. So like her role is to basically like ensure that that person is happy and to like carry make everything OK for them. Yeah. All around. The children are the property of the patriarch. 
so the patriarch decides if they live or die, basically. And historically, if you look at like history of childhood, like literally, like, you know, it's violent history. The history of childhood is very violent. So in our country, yeah. So um, what's happened recently, like I'm a feminist and I'm, you know, love feminism. But one of the difficult things, and this is actually probably going to link into what we'll talk about, about why the system doesn't change. But, you know, when like for some feminists, um, better situation for women is for them to hold the power of the patriarch, that they can become the God, that they are unaccountable, that they can do what they want and hold power over others. So some feminist movement has like strived to get women into those positions of power, but haven't actually changed the power dynamic itself. So in a family where you've got parents who essentially like are not saying sorry to their kids, not listening to their kids, their families aren't like participatory, you know, like there aren't, isn't a dialogue between the different members, but the parents are like the ones that decide and call all the shots and the children just literally like abide, you know, I mean, this is an exaggerated example, but it's not that exaggerated. Um, it's a patriarchal dynamic. It's a power over, not power with dynamic. Mm. And that's also what you have in school. Largely speaking, you have, you know, the head teacher at the top, like how, and, you know, and different head teachers obviously aren't like behave in different ways, but like how often does that head teacher say sorry? How accountable are they? How available are they for challenge or change or, you know, being responsive to their community? And then the teachers and the senior leaders under the head teacher, like what what is the power play there between the head and those folk? Like how safe do they feel to challenge or to say something or to say, I can't do any more, I'm at my capacity? Yeah, like what is the relationship there and then you've got all the young people who make up like the vast majority of the community of that place like what is their experience of their own personal power do they have any personal power or are they in a system of a power over dynamic like what what happens if they say no what happens if a young person says no in a school environment like will that be respected is that care for that expression of self or is it not you know yeah yeah thank you it's fascinating. And so, so, so I, I suppose that I, I often try to play the devil's advocate in these conversations. I suppose that some people might say things like, you know, like that the, 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 you were talking about those traditional sort of rules of thumb for child rearing, having a naughty step, having like taking a firm line, children need firm boundaries, that sort of thing. That, that this is sort of that it's like tough medicine, but it's good for them. Mm -hmm. Because they need to understand how to how to you know interact in a pro-social way, and that you can't just sort of be impulsive all the time. That you need to that you need to you know to to what would be the word to induct children into like more like sort of civilized ways of of, of interacting, right? To prepare them for the, for adult life. What would you what would you make of that argument as as that as as a defense of that approach to to child rearing? I mean, that is like a thought like um you know what's the word like a state of thinking right to hold that belief system it's exactly the same belief system that says colonialism is a good idea you know oh those cologne like you know that's what drove coloniality was this notion that like indigenous people needed to be colonized for their own well-being because they were uneducated and they needed to be civilized yeah like there's loads of people that thought that was a good idea at the time you know coloniality was driven by this sense of like the best intentions of like the other but like I think most people hopefully now would acknowledge that like that is massively problematic and like not okay like to violently impose your culture and your sense of civilization on like others isn't 
it's like a violent process. It's not like a respectful process. So yeah, I mean, like, you know, most, most adults do think that children need to be civilized. They need to be dominated in order to fit in or in order to get on in life. Like loads of people do think that you're definitely in the minority in our culture. If you believe that actually like another way is possible, that actually maybe like children are not in need of domination to grow, that they can grow in an environment where they're respected in this like respectful relationship that is two ways I think where this where sometimes that reaction can come of like oh you're just saying that children can do whatever they want and like you know actually no they need to be told what to do like it's that's a binary perspective really on this topic because actually like what I work with is consent and consent isn't about someone just doing whatever they want to someone else all the time yeah it's about two ways there's a mutuality in this it's like what is okay for you what is okay for me okay how do we now find what is okay for us together it's all about like finding third ways and if you are being in a family in a consent-based way or in a learning community you know you have boundaries it's just that the boundaries are like reached in a more collaborative process than imposed by the adults you know it's a, a boundary can be personal it can be like you can't touch my body that's a boundary. Like we're all entitled, in my opinion, to have our own personal boundaries. So like, you know, that again, it's these conversations are difficult because there's so much mixed definition around same used words. You know, I say boundary, you say boundary, another person says boundary. Like we have a different understanding of what that word means. For one person, it means like a rule and someone being taught what they can't do. And that is a boundary. Whereas for myself, a boundary is the point at which I I end and you begin and what happens in that place, you know, or where I end and the environment I'm in begins and what happens in the exchange in that place, you know, and mm. yeah. Yeah. See, thank you. So, so, so you run this course, this, this consent based education course. So I was wondering like for the benefit of any listeners or viewers indeed, um, like if they were to come to that, like what 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 are the key principles? Like consent based education one hundred and one. Like yeah. what are the key sort of principles? How would you introduce people to this? Because for yeah. some people, I've been having this conversation with people online recently, and they're like, "What is consent based education? Is this just like letting kids like that you can only educate them if they if they agree to to be in the lesson?" And how how would that even work? So so lots of people might be coming to this with just like, "What even is this?" Like they're looking at it like down like the wrong end of a telescope. So what what would be an easy way to introduce people to these ideas? I think it depends on the starting point of the different people. And in the work that I do, I really work hard to ex express in the invitation of the course, like on the web page of the course, like this is what it's about. And like, this is the kind of folk that probably will be interested in it. And this is the outline of what we're going to cover. And it's a really helpful way to make sure that the people that sign up into that process are at a readiness point to receive the process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that if someone is completely new to this idea, even that like children are people, yeah, or like that they're they're very much like have been socialized and institutionalized within the mainstream system and they don't see young people as whole humans, they see them in another kind of way, yeah. then this is not going to be a good experience for them. Yeah, it's not going to be, it's like not, and it's and not only that, but like cut the process of un doing and unpacking all of that like embedded culture that we get is painful yeah and it takes time you know in home ed world we call it de-schooling sometimes it's like a reconditioning a healing and a letting go of what you thought was true oh wow like I thought that children had to be taught to read 
in school, otherwise they would be illiterate. You know, oh, that's weird that my child has learned to read organically without ever being to school. Yeah, like reconciling these things and then understanding the implication of them when lots of children are forced through processes that they're not ready for in a school system and then go on to internalize poor sense of self-esteem because they haven't been good at it. Do you see what I mean? Like once you start to realize like the actual level of harm that occurs in the mainstream system, it's really difficult to like integrate that, especially if you are working in that system because you're part of that process, right? So it's like to what you know, to, you know, to go back to the course, like session one is what is patriarchy and what is its impact. Session two is why is change hard? And one of the reasons change is hard is because it re requires a fluency in grieving. Yeah, you have to like be willing to grieve for what is now different in your understanding than was before, and and also process grief you might have around your own role in perpetuating that harm. And it's actually difficult. Like folk will bounce back in denial. They're, you know, start the grieving process. The first, you know, one of the first stages can be denial. And lots of people don't get further than that because actually, if you were to fully appreciate like the impact, it's like destabilizing. Yeah, yeah I've I've certainly seen that. There's there's I've noticed that there's quite a lot of of um of friction that you get when you talk about the ways in which schools impact on young people's mental health and well-being, for example. Lots of people who work in the system don't don't look like they're ready to have that conversation. And it's and it's perfectly understandable because they don't want to feel like they are part of a system that that makes that you know that makes children feel mentally unwell. But also they they often make a, a perfectly valid point that there are various ways in which schools help with people's mental health and well-being, right? That they can provide them with good relationships and a stable community that they feel a part of. And it's not like, like everything with regard to mental health, it's really complex and multi-layered. Mm -hmm. But you know, and even when you look at the ways in which the, the you know the the mental health of teachers is not in good shape, and the statistics are going in a in a bad direction, yeah, and school leaders as well. And so, um, <clears throat> yeah, I can see what you mean that you need to be at a point of readiness in order to in order to understand what this lo looks like. And so, could you maybe sort of share some examples of? Of what 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 does consent look like in the when you're working with young people? Yeah. How how would it how would that play out just in, in a in a sort of just mundane sort of like everyday like examples of of what consent based education looks like? Yeah. Okay. So consent based education is literally nothing like schooling as we know it. It's nothing like the tradition of education that we've like got up until now. It's not comparable. So it's you, you can't put the two models against each other and like talk about the pros and the cons of either because it's just so completely different. It's a different way, basically. If you're going to take a consent-based approach, then what you are saying is that the consent of the person matters in what they do in their life. Yeah. So, so there are like these different areas that you might think about: intellectual, emotional, bodily, creative, spiritual. For example, yeah, a five like zones of ourself, areas of ourselves. And in a consent-based education, you're you are, you know, doing kind of two things. One, you're wanting to like nurture the self-esteem of the person so that then they like can even like know their own voice and like take it seriously. So it's like a person has to feel like strong in themselves, yeah, to then be self-directed and know whether they mean yes or no or maybe to what they're navigating. And then on the other hand, you have to have like um a frame that enables and facilitates people to make choices and to have influence, basically. Those two things kind of like need to meet. And then in that place, you can have consent-based self-directed education. Um, 
So, you know, in a practical sort of everyday sense, like in our settings, we co-create the plan of what we're going to do together. We do it on a weekly basis and um, anyone in the community can do that. So a young person who is five can add something to the plan. A facilitator can add something to the plan. Young people and facilitators can add something together to the plan. And that um, the plan is available to anyone in the community to participate in. If it goes on the plan, anyone can join in. Um, at the same time, you don't have to do anything on the plan. So you could come in on that day and you choose actually to do your own activity or to to spontaneously do something else whilst you're in the setting. And that all is all fine as well. Um, but we're actively not seeking to coerce young people into doing things. So like we have this thing called Ed Positivity, which is like speaking straight to um, the issue of subject, like artificial siloing of subject matter, like the world does not function in silos. So like, we don't want to perpetuate this idea that like science is separate to history, is separate to maths, is separate to geography. Like these things, and it's artificial to separate them. And, and also we know that like the curriculum that is valued in the school environment has a lot of problems. There's very strong bias in that curriculum, which values some ways of using your time and some knowledge over others. So we don't believe in that. We don't think that, well, first of all, I personally don't think that the national curriculum is well-rounded in any way at all. And it's hugely politically biased, um, which isn't helpful in my opinion, um, for young people to grow in like a, a well-rounded, open-minded way. So, you know, we're with Ed Positivity, what we're saying is, Loads of people know what they're interested in and what they're curious about. Being curious is really a good sign that maybe you want to like learn about something. Like your curiosity is kind of your first port of motivation or inspiration. And so we encourage like people to not feel inhibited or feel worried that the thing that they are curious in is not meaningful. Um, yeah, is that enough for for now, James? I feel like you know this is a big topic, and I can sometimes sense you're like ready for a question. <laughs> No, no. So, so I, I mean, man, I, I'm so at the start of this journey into thinking about this, but I think it's really important that we do. So, for example, might it look like, you know, so so if a, if a child had done a piece of work, rather than saying, like, I'm going to mark that and I'm going to give you some feedback on it, you might say, would you like some feedback on that? Is that is that an example of what you might? What I mean, might... it's funny. I actually don't can't think of an example of having given feedback in our settings. Really, if but for sure, if someone wanted it, if someone was like, "Oh, can you tell me what you think of this?" and I would be like, "Yeah, I'll tell you my opinion of what I think about it." Mm-hmm. But like, I think that because we're not aiming, like I said, the, the the approaches are completely different. The beliefs that underpin them are completely different. Like in a in our settings, we aren't thinking about children as people of the future or that every academic year is working towards this like pinnacle point of the exams and then this future that you know fictional future that lies ahead that if everyone does what they're told like between now and then it's going to be really good for them I don't believe in any of that we don't believe in that story yeah like we see that as like a school story we don't believe in that story what we believe in is that children are people now they're not like waiting for a future that they're a real person now what they're interested in now is important like I personally believe in like things having purpose and function you know that like or that you know if that it's not about you know I'm I'm personally all about like um practice and personal discipline or like skill acquisition and like developing your craft developing your art like for me I love that I love watching someone who is brilliant in their art or who is thriving in their in their work. Mm-hmm. You know, I believe that people are more likely to do that if they've had like some space to understand where that lies for them 
And I feel like school does not allow that to happen. It, in fact, it like disorientates people from that sense of themselves. So, you know, for children, like what I'm curious or like what I want for them in our environment is that they feel free to explore like what is coming up for them, what, what they're drawn to, like, and many different things, make mistakes, like start something and drop it. It doesn't matter. It's a process of like experimentation. And why not experiment in the years where you are, you know, living with your family, you don't have all the pressures of like having to create your own income. You know, youth is really a good opportunity for a lot of self-exploration and experimentation, you know, um, before the responsibilities of adulthood kind of kick in. So for me, I'm like, look into that thing. Yeah. Like if you are interested in Pokemon, that's great. Yeah. Pokemon is like one of the most successful cultural like youth culture entities right now out there like if someone's into it then that makes a lot of sense to me do you know what I mean like that is a value interest so mm. you know it's kind of I don't know is it entrepreneurial it's creative it's heart-based hands-based you know it's like just being in the world you know I don't know <laughs> Yeah, so so you you answered my next question, which was going to be a sort of another devil's advocate type question, which is, that I think that people who might be listening to this might be thinking like, what about like if kids just if you give them if you if they can only do what they consent to do, what if they just want to goof off and just you know and for example just play Pokemon all day? But you've already answered that question, and you're like, and, and I've had this similar conversation. I had Naomi Fisher on the on the podcast a while ago. And and it's like what we want is to give kids choice, but then we sort of get disappointed when they don't make the choices that we've already decided are in their best interest. And kids often choose different things, which is part of the journey. I was wondering, like, I mean, is that a tension that you that you hold? Like, is that something that come that comes up for you when you're working with young people in this way? Do you sometimes feel like, oh wow, like I I sort of wish that you were making different choices? That's that's really interesting. And we do explore this on the course, actually. And what I say to people on this subject is like, every time you feel that way, turn the mirror around to yourself. If you think that is a good thing to do, then why don't you do it? <laughs> yourself like people are more likely to be inspired if they witness you modeling it like if you're into that thing and then you go ahead and like let other people do what they want to do I think you know part of the problem we have which is definitely not consensual is when like and this is again it's like um an issue between adults and young people and the power problem is that adults often believe that children should do the right thing and they should like learn the important thing like meanwhile they're doing whatever they want it's a hypocrisy there's a hypocrisy within it there's like a projection of like the needing the children to like be this moral example that they you know or do the thing that they think they should do do the right thing adults like why are you not looking at your own self yeah like you know it's a classic thing of like a parent being like no you can't have any ice cream and then like sneaking off into the kitchen and like eating all the ice cream it's like that's not okay <laughs> this is a problem here you know so I think oftentimes anxiety like if a person feels an anxiety like oh I'm really worried that you know I'm really worried that my child should be spending more time in nature because being in nature is good well you go in nature then yeah if you, if you know that how how often are you in nature yeah, it's important that we like think about these things in a self-reflective way rather than not be self-aware, not, you know, not take responsibility for ourselves. Like we want young people to take responsibility for their own process. We need to take responsibility for our own process, the decisions that we make, you know, what we use our time for and so on. 
Yeah, yeah. And so so we're not having this conversation in the abstract, are we? Like we you've been working in this way for for a long time. But I wonder if you could share a few examples of the of the kinds of the kinds of things that young people get up to when when they're working in this consent-based environment. Mm-hmm. Like the sorts of things that happen in the setting kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So I mean Oh, you know, it it depends. It's different all the time. It depends on who is there because, like, your what happens is influenced obviously by the interests of the group at the time or like what they need and what's going on for them. Um, I'll tell you one thing which I thought was interesting when we came back from COVID, um, because we had to close like everyone else. Um, we came back from COVID and we realized that like we didn't need a plan for a little while. We we still went through the motions of like offering the opportunity to create and we we did still put stuff onto the plan but the unmet need in the community was to be together it was to be together to connect to meet social needs that had been really unmet for a long time mm-hmm. to recover and like feel something again about like life like what was life going to be like now and to like recalibrate and become more grounded and so like for quite a few weeks after we came back from covid like that was what you saw playing out in the community was that people needed to be together they needed to play together they needed to connect and it was after a little while that then the need shifted and like the plan came back a bit more and like the you know the interest moved on and interest changed and you know that's one of the really nice things about being able to work in this way is that you can be so responsive to like the genuine needs of the group that you are working with like the what you do changes in response to what is needed and that is very healthy right like you're not just making people carry on as normal or whatever you know it's like you can acknowledge like what is actually happening um and so i i suppose in other ways that that is a current that runs through what happens in our space you know like for some people if they're home educating it might be their main social space you know like that that's the time when they're in community with other folk because other times they're either going to like you know classes here and there but it's not like the same people every time let's say um so for them their main need that they want that makes sense for them to meet in our settings is to see their friends and to connect and to develop their social emotional skills and you know to to learn more of themselves in relation to other people in that way. And then for other people, it may be project-based type stuff, like, you know, art, drawing, reading, it's all going on in our place. There's games, there's conversations. The meetings themselves are like a very rich space for skill development and learning because um, we have like a process of rotating the chairing of our circle meetings. We do them twice a day. And um, anyone in the community can train to be a chair of those meetings. And we've had chairs as young as five um, and they're holding a circle of like 12 people um, through a process of agreements, checking in, um, making plans, problem solving and troubleshooting, shared risk assessment processes, all kinds of stuff. Um, I mean, that's pretty good, like in terms of like skills and (laughs) development. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, And what's the age range that you work with? It tends to be younger, younger children, doesn't it? We've actually got um, uh, the cabin is five to 11. And then we opened the lodge last year, which is like we have like a, um, a, a gentle window of transition. So like between 10 and 11, you can move up to the lodge and that will go up to 16. Um, All right. OK. Yeah. Right. Thank you. And 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 I want to come on to the why as to like why we should talk about like why is this such important work in your view? But one question is about the boundaries what are the boundaries of consent-based education with regard to safeguarding, with regard to, you know, like letting the kid go and play with the kettle or like wander uh-huh. out the front door, for example? How how does that play out? 
So we have like consent is the beautiful kind of like um, counterbalance to being self-directed. Self-directed is like, what do you want to do? Tune into yourself. Now go and do it. Yeah, that's it. Really summarized briefly. Consent is like what happens when your self-direction meets someone or something else. And that's where the boundary stuff comes in. And in our setting, we have a practice of agreement making. And we also have like boundaries that have to be there for like safeguarding reasons, like you say. So I'm the safeguarding lead. That means that I have certain needs in the community that are linked, connected to my role and responsibilities. So there are some things which you just cannot do because they are unsafe for you or for other people. And like, but, you know, we're always trying to like keep it so that those types of things are to the minimum and aren't there for the sake of it you know it's like literally because like if you do that you might like get really badly injured so like you can't do that right rather than arbitrary kind of controls you know it's very there's always a why like a really well like answerable reason for anything like that if you see what I mean um yeah I see oh yeah and then I was going to say that like anything else where there's a chance that your behavior or activity or actions could impinge on the rights of others or the bodily autonomy of another person or the emotional autonomy of another person um we make agreements around them so like for example um people can bring some stuff into the setting if they want they let people know in the opening meeting what they brought in and then we ask the question like do you need any agreements around that like do we need any agreements around it so like let's say someone and this does happen like someone brings in a bunch of like nerf gun resources because they want to use nerf guns and then we would say okay so what agreements do we need to have and you ask the question and then people will tell you well what about if we make a designated space what about if they can only be used between this time and that time so everyone knows how do we know who is consenting to play the nerf and who isn't consenting to play the nerf so that someone that's not consenting doesn't get hit you co-create like a set of agreements and then you get on with it. Do you see what I mean? So it's not like anyone can do anything. They can't because you're in relationship with other people and their consent matters, right? To what you were doing that affects them. Um, but, but yeah, but also like you need to know what like what doesn't affect them that they might, you know, it's like uh, people need to understand like where they begin and end and not just be controlling for controlling sake, if you see what I mean. Um, that's really important. So like not to impose like a sense of, you know, I guess like in our settings, as you'd imagine, like no one has a uniform, people wear whatever they want. People can have face paint on, people can have their hair however they want. They do whatever they like with their bodies in that way. And that's not true in like other learning environments. And I suppose that's an example I would give around like where control is, has another purpose um, beyond safeguarding. Yeah, 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 I can see. Thank you. And so so let's come on to why. Um, we, we talked a bit, a bit about this before we started recording, but I'd, I'd like to just give you the floor at this point and maybe I'll chip in some of my own thinking on this, but why do you think that it's important to be to be working with young people in this way around consent? Um, I, like, because it's ethical, basically. I, I wouldn't want to um, do what happens in school. And and I wouldn't want to use my power in that way. I feel like it is really not okay. And um, I say that as someone that like loved school myself. I was head girl, head girl, sorry, at primary school. I was head girl at secondary school. I went to like great university. I had, you know, I I was someone that did meet a lot of my needs in school. Even that being said, I can in hindsight see what was not okay that happened in school or what that I learnt. Um, even as a a student that was like really doing so so well in the eyes of the system, and um, 
there's you know I don't know like how do you know when you shouldn't it's like why shouldn't you be sexist like for me it's the feeling that comes from the same place I don't want to treat young people like they don't have a voice when they do I don't want to make young people do something that given the choice they wouldn't choose to do especially when it's something low level like a subject that they literally hate but then they have to keep on being in that room they have to go there like it's just a waste of their time I don't want to waste young people's lives like that I want them to like be able to live their best life. I want them to have a chance of like understanding their purpose and potential here. I want them to be able to have healthy relationships with themselves and with their friends and with potential partners and other people and with the planet we live on. I don't want them to learn this culture that we keep on passing down intergenerationally just because we have have not yet built a better system. Mm. Like I want to break the cycle of that. Like, it's enough. We don't need to keep doing this. Enough people know that the way school is now is not good enough. It doesn't work well. It's not efficient. It's not in the best interest of young people to carry on with it as it is. It's like the best of the bad options or something. You know, most people are using it because there isn't an alternative. You know, parents putting their kids in when their kids are like, super anxious even parents whose kids are doing well i know plenty of parents whose kids are doing okay in the system they still see that it is not good for their kids it's not like enough yeah and like teachers feel that that's why they get sick in my opinion yeah it's like recently one of the things i've wanted to write about is this idea around overscheduling as behavior management you know it's like as teachers are so like in that overschedule to control like young people overschedule them. It's a behavior management tool that we don't really talk about. We see it as like a timetable and a plan because they're learning something for exams, but it's a problem, you know? So for me, I just don't want to be part of like carrying that on anymore. Like someone has to pull the brake, take a step outside, de-school themselves, look at the problem one step removed and understand that actually, oh, wow, like humans have the capacity to like do this differently and given the right space and the opportunity, it's kind of amazing what happens at that, you know, we don't even most people don't see young people that have not been through the institutionalized experience of schooling. Even it's like when you um when you you know there's like kind of interesting research into like animal behavior in a zoo versus animal behavior in the wild and like skill loss that comes with captivity versus skill gain that can come in like an experience of living in a different way. Like because all that we see generally is humans that have been raised within this institutional context, most people do not do not even have a full understanding of human capacity. They see like a limited a limited experience of growth and understand that as being children and young people and humans. It's not. There's so much lost in the socialization in school. And the dominant culture, yeah, in families too, I'm not just saying school, in our dominant culture towards young people, so much of what it means to be a human is lost. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And 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 a, a really good example of that is to look at some of the young people who have never been to school, who have been homeschooled or unschooled, and look at how they turn out. And there's a, one example being the young man, the 10-year-old boy who was uh, who was um, our youngest speaker at the conference on Saturday, and he did this amazing speech at the end, this five-minute speech. We'll we'll put it up on the website at some point, um, where he was saying, like, so what if I if I don't know my eight times table yet? I can dance, drum, and rap, and I've I've built like amazing things, and I've like experienced amazing things, and 
you know, I, I help people in the community. And he was like, just give us a break. Just like, give us the space to, to be who we want to be. And, and, he, and he's an incredible, almost like an advert for not sending your kids to school because like, he is just like, it's so uninhibited. And the, 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 the extent to which he has fulfilled potential that may well have been closed off to him if he'd have been in the classroom for, for those, for those eight years or however many it has been. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting. And, and and you were talking there about a culture of coercion that we sort of that we pass down from generation to generation. And that's the thing that has really sort of that I've, I've just been thinking about a lot. And I know we spoke about this offline a moment ago, but just to sort of summarize my thinking, and then I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. This recent conversation that I had with with um with Johnny Hunt, who who wrote this book called Sex Ed for Grown-ups. Um, and we were talking about consent within the context of PSHE lessons, about how you might have one or two lessons on, on consent within the context of, of sex and relationships education. Um, but it's often just basically it's the bare bones about the, the, the age of consent. And this is the yeah. legal framework. And this is what happens to people who, who don't follow the law sort of thing. This is what happens to people who rape people. And and it's so inadequate, clearly, <laughs> as a as a way to prepare young people for the world of sexual relationships, but even more widely than that. And when you look at when you look at some of the stuff that's been happening recently, we had you know movements like Me Too and and everyone's invited. Which, for in case anyone isn't aware of that, it was sort of like the school based version of Me Too, mm-hmm. where young people in schools were able to anonymously disclose on a website instances of sexual misconduct and harassment and catcalling and so on. Not just at them, but you know students catcalling teachers and members of staff and so on. And then they published the list of the schools. They didn't name yes. individuals, but they published a list of the schools and that hit that that made shockwaves and and now Ofsted are starting to look at this stuff more more carefully thankfully when they expect schools and and the list goes on recently this you know the 56 MPs keeps trending on Twitter there's 56 MPs who have been investigated for sexual misconduct there's all these examples of people being drugged in nightclubs even Mm -hmm. physically drugged with 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 needles now and it just being normalized in nightclubs where you, you know when you get a drink you, it comes with a little rubber cover over it mm-hmm. and you can stick a straw through so that people can't stick things in your drink and like, like young young women wearing thick denim to go out to nightclubs because it's harder to puncture with a with a with a needle like we, these, these things are becoming normalized and and that's only with regard to and, and you know domestic violence and the list goes on yeah like, just with regard to sex and relationships education the issue of consent we have clearly got a massive like we're in a really really dark place and that's just within sex and relationships education if you look more widely at the endemic examples of workplace bullying yeah in westminster and also beyond if we look at other practices like lobbying, where we, you know, we sort of just accept these things, but it's another other examples of coercive behaviour, often with financial yeah. incentives. War, we're seeing, you know, like in the headlines again, which is like maybe the the most ultimate extreme form of coercive, mm-hmm. uh, very damaging behaviour. You just see it all the way through the the adult the news cycle, if you like. Yeah. The, all of this, the human story seems to be a story of adults coercing one another into doing things against their will by whatever means 
uh, that they have at their disposal. Yeah. And and then you, I said that what my current thinking is is just like how could it be any other way when you know at best they have one or two lessons on on consent within the context mm-hmm. of PSHE, mm-hmm. but everything else about their experience of childhood, whether it's from parents or from siblings or from you know uh, from from their experience of education. Is one of coercion, and if they and if they say no, you were saying earlier, like what happens when a kid says no to something? If they, you know, if they wear the wrong coloured socks at some schools, or if they got the wrong type of haircut, mm-hmm. uh, and they say no, I'm not going to do that, then it gets escalated, right? Then you have a detention, then you have this consequence ladder, and that yeah. just goes up and up until you yield to the authority yeah. of, the, of the system. Yeah, um, and then you in, you inculcate that message, right? People talk about the hidden curriculum. The hidden curriculum is you coerce people into doing stuff and you escalate it until they yield. And that's how the world works. And that's, that's a recipe for the world that we have. Yeah. And it seems just such a, I mean, it's wow. Like what a massive, massive set of interconnected problems that is. Yeah. But, but we were talking earlier about how consent-based education, it seems like total anathema to people at the moment. But so did not sending, not not putting children into the workplace not that long ago. So mm-hmm. did, you know, like not having a national health system. So did women not being able to vote. So many things that we now take for granted, we look back on and think, how did people think that? And it feels like coercive behaviours towards young people in, in educational settings especially might well be something that we look back on in the way that we now look back on corporal punishment and think, yeah. what were we thinking like that was a recipe for a, for a very coercive society. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree. And like part of my early process with this when my daughter was still really little was came from a place of pain around what you're talking about. It's like, you know, we say on the surface, it's like the difference between actions and words. You know, we say, oh, yes, we are this kind of society and these kind of people. And then like when you look at the behavior, it's like, oh, geez, I, that's not so good. You know, there's, there's a like this out like where people think in their heads is out of a line with where the action and the behavior is actually playing out. And um, and that is partly in a way because doing differently with your actions is hard if you haven't got a model. You know, we are kind of like chimpanzees or like, you know, orangutans. They when when an orangutan is orphaned, they have to witness climbing orangutans to learn how to climb. Like some creatures just know how to do these things, but others need to learn from witnessing. And so, like, if you can't see how to be in a more consent based way, like with your own self or with other people, then you can say that you want it, but your actions are going to be very stifled and limited. You need, you know, it's difficult um, without being able to see it. It's like, where's the model? You know what I mean? So people just carry on cycling in the same behavior, even though they're like, I don't want to be, I don't want to misuse my power. Oh, and then you just misuse your power over young people again. Like, you know, so, so it is difficult, but yeah, what I was going to say was when, when, when um, originally I was kind of coming to this, realization that oh yeah consent-based practice consent-based team to self-direction like this really is the answer to like a lot of my problems you know we're talking about it in terms of you know education or whatever but like you say like I also had that experience of being like well most of the problems in the world like really would be massively improved if this was the culture in which humans grew up in like environmental issues would not be the same violence in society interpersonal violence couldn't happen you know, if you you need like a different set of cultural beliefs and shared behavior in order for this to to become the world that we 
live in, you know, and while we keep on putting each generation into a power over violent learning environment, which is what school is like, you know, school was used as a tool to colonize. I said it earlier on, but when other nations were colonized by the British, schooling and the church was how those folk were broken from their culture. It was how they were colonized, you know, in by generation, you take the children from the parents and then you do what you want to impart on them in a violent way and then there you are that's literally how colonization happens yeah so like in a way what we have is we are a colonizer culture we've you know our own history of colonization is from a long 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 time ago it's not in our like memory to identify as that oh yeah we're colonizers recolonizing ourselves all the time but that is what is happening so if we don't want to be like that, we have to socialize differently. We have to socialize in a consent-based way. You have to treat people differently. You have to be in different kinds of relationships. People have to have a different sense of their own self, a different relationship with themselves. A lot of this roots back to people having high levels of self-esteem. You have to love yourself to be able to be in a consensual relationship with other people and in your life. You know, so it's it is a huge thing and that the potential benefits of cultural transition to consent based way is massive it's totally transformative on a personal and societal level it's not a small thing it's not easy to happen because in the same way like you know I was talking about animals before if you've got a, an animal that has been kept in captivity for ages and you just release it into the wild it's hard for that animal because it lacks skill that you need to survive we can't just go into a school and expect to transition it overnight into consent-based self-directed practice it's not possible because the people in that building do not have the skills they don't have the systems they don't have the ways of relating that you need to cope with that it's the reality you know so if you're going to transition a school you have to start small and incrementally and when i've talked in the past with head teachers around this there are some brilliant head teachers in the uk who understand that this is an issue want to talk about it have talked reached out to me to talk about the issue of consent in their school, because it's one of those things like once you see it, it can't be unseen. You know, they know that the young people in their school are under duress and coercion in classrooms that they don't want to be in. You know, like one school that I worked with was one of their issues was they had young people in a classroom with a teacher and those young people perceived that teacher as racist. And it was a big problem because they had to keep going back into the classroom. They did not have good methods to deal with that conflict. They did not have good methods to deal with that. And that is a big issue. Yeah, that is not a small thing. It's not okay for that to happen. And, you know, so anyway, as I was saying, like there are head teachers that understand this and they can see it and they're sat in it every day. The same wheels are turning. All the young people are not in alignment. They're not behaving authentically. To, you know, they're doing what they're told. Yeah, they're doing what they're told. It's a big issue. And when I've sp spoken to those head teachers and strategized with them around how you would transition into something more consent based, my strategy with them is incremental over time. But it is a huge job. Yeah, you would. I would start with a year group with as part of the timetable in a week within one year group and you would build a culture and transition it over years. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. And that was that was going to be a question that I was going to come back to. And I might I might come back to that in a moment. I just want to I just want to um, come back to something that you said there, because it's, it's a language that you sometimes hear. You described schooling as a form of violence. Yeah. And again, that's something that people would understandably find quite triggering. The, the word yeah. coercion is quite triggering the word violence even more so sometimes people use this phrase symbolic violence can you explain what you mean by that because i think i suspect that people might take exception to the idea of yeah. 
of you know their work as teachers being described as a form of violence yeah of course they will and i and i and i like you know i hope it's in some way helpful to know how many teachers are in my own family when we're talking about this it's you know we're talking theoretically and in about institutional structure and systems and culture and and although you know i do think teachers have accountability and should have accountability and head teachers should and to reflect on these things is not a bad thing even though it's extremely difficult you know, we need to wake up to like what is going on. And lots of folk are aware of that and then don't know what to do next because the problem is so difficult to find a solution to, you know. But um, yeah, what I'm talking about in terms of violence is like I do see it as violent to rob someone of themselves. I see that as a violence that happens in the system and in mainstream parenting, you know, to rob someone of themselves, to to disorient them so much from their own sense of who they are what they would say genuinely in a given situation what they would choose to do with their time if they had even a modicum of freedom to actually think about it for themselves depriving people like that at scale is a violence in my opinion I don't think it's okay I don't want that for people anyone yeah I don't want it for myself I don't want it for anyone else it's so sad and like you said, there's a sort of like you can track it, you know, and for me, it was helpful in my, having a background in history of social, social justice movement, because you can see progress like over history and like understand, oh, this part had to move for then this part to become visible, then this part moves and then this part becomes visible. You know, if if um, if what had happened in in that course of, of social change um hadn't happened I probably wouldn't have understood what I understand now you know you need what you have behind you to make sense of what what you are in mm. um yeah like you said you know really not long ago at all it was legal to hit children in schools to control them and, and make as a form of coercion you use physical harm to get pain you basically inflict physical pain to get them to do and sit where they're supposed to and do what you tell them to we don't do that anymore which is a good thing but instead what we do is we inflict psychological pain we have like um what's the word it's like controlling coercive behavior management in schools which is now illegal in adult relationships you it's abusive in adult relationships to use coercive control yeah but that is the model by which behavior is managed in schools you threaten you have the psychological control i mean even the story of school is a form of psychological control if it sounds something like if you don't get really good results you will be a failure in life that is an extremely abusive belief to impart on people because it's and it's not even true. We know that it's not even true. Yeah. So I do find it a very violent system. And the fact that like most folk are numbed out to that and don't realize that is hugely depressing and sad and speaks to me of like whatever they might also be numbed out to in their own lived experience. Like what are they tolerating then if they don't even witness that as being controlling and coercive or they don't see the harm in it? Like that is also sad to me and heartbreaking to me you know yeah thank you for clarifying that as you make a you make a powerful case and so and so um when you were to come back to the modeling thing like like one of the things that's so hard here when i've when i've mentioned this to people online and they're like what is consent-based education what does yeah. it even look like and if and if they themselves haven't ever experienced it and the majority of teachers now were born after the national curriculum came in we've been sort of told yeah. what to learn about and that we've, we've had we've, we've known this for all of our lives and a big part of my work when i was a when i was a, a pshe teacher and, and leader was um around role playing right so like like practicing saying no like when you when you're talking about sex and relationships like if yeah. somebody's trying to, to to persuade you to 
to do something and you and you don't want to do it you can say the word no but then they're going to come back with other stuff they're going to they're going to come back with other forms of controlling behavior or they're going to be texting you 50 times a day to check on yeah. your whereabouts and what have you like how can you how can you respond to that and it's such important work but you have to go through that process of like what would it look like? What would it feel like to say no to your friends when they're all smoking mm-hmm. or a cigarette or, or whatever it might be? How can you say no to that within the context of of, of, um, of peer peer group pressure? And and there are so few models around for consent. Like when I spoke, when the conversation I mentioned with Johnny Hunt, he highlighted a, a drama that was on the BBC a while ago called Normal People. Oh, uh, and, and and there was this scene in there. There was a sex scene where it was like this incredible modeling of consent where they, 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 he kept saying, you know, is this okay? Can I take your jumper off? Are you okay with this? Just say if you're not. And, and it was done in a very sensitive way that didn't sort of disturb the, you know, the romance of the moment, say, but it was just like, it was so notable because it's like, just like hen's teeth. There are hardly any sort of models out there for, yeah. for what, for what this looks like in practice, what it feels like, what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I thought, I thought you were going to come in there. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> um, and so, and so, let's come. Let's, let's let's finish on this on this one question. And you touched on it briefly then, which was, what would this look like in a main in the context of a mainstream school? Because for lots of people, they just when I when I mention this to people, they sort of smile. They just break out and they're like, "Wow!" Like, what would that look like in terms of pedagogy, in terms of behaviour? in terms of curriculum, in terms of assessment, what would what would a truly consent-based system look like? And and it, I think that you sort of answered the question a bit earlier on when you were like, the fact that you're talking about, about having a consent-based mainstream school is, is almost like an irreconcilable tension because the whole nature of school is that you sort of have to go there, you have to wear a uniform, you have to do your top button up and to have a spare pen in your bag. And there's so many things that that you know fundamental to the way that that schools run, that to that you, that you can't just flick a switch. No. But, but I think that you can see consent and coercion as being two ends of a of a spectrum, yeah. and there are lots of things that we can do. The, the 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 small steps that you were talking about, the incremental steps where you can where you can give you allow people to take some baby steps along that way. Yeah. So maybe maybe it might be an idea just to end on this as a practical as a practical note to end on. If there are any teachers or school leaders who are who are working in mainstream settings who are listening to this and thinking, okay, I'm persuaded. What could we do within the context of this this sort of the structures that are pre-existing? What are the kinds of things that can happen in schools to move further towards the consent-based end of the spectrum? Yeah, yeah, I t- and you're right. It isn't you know part part of patriarchy is to put things into the binary: good, bad, heaven, hell right wrong you know it's with want to break out of that into more nuance and complexity and understanding about spectrum and variety of experience it doesn't either make one thing like strictly consensual and one thing strictly controlling coercive right that's not really like what life is like um and so i think for anyone that does want to make some changes like now you know the first step is to recognize where your culture is currently at you know what is your starting point in that spectrum are you right down this end or further up this way, you know, in your environment, like where is the opportunity for students to influence things? I'm not talking about student council. Yeah. Like in the everyday experience, like have influence, 
have a sense of like like ability to be able to say yes no or maybe to things to ask to question to be critical you know not within the subject where the criticality is about a question but like to the environment that they're in is there is there a healthy relationship with criticality um yeah so you know you you start off by working out where you are and also where you are personally with this in your own life because again on the cb course literally the i'm saying to people this isn't about your children this is about you because if you are not in this yourself, you ha- you can't share this to other people. It's not something you can impose on someone else, a bit like what we were talking about before. So, you know, it's step one, where am I, am I at myself with my own sense of consent, with my own authenticity, with my own integrity and alignment? When I say yes, do I mean yes? When I say no, do I mean no or not? You know, like, where is that? How discombobulated is it or how strong is it? You know, that sense of alignment and integrity. And then in my circumstance, so obviously like a head teacher's potential influence is different to senior leaders, to a classroom teachers, to TAs, to a, you know, person working on the site, to someone working in the dining hall. But everyone has some space for change making, you know, they have something. And you look at that space and you think like, what is the lowest hanging fruit? Where is there a chance for me to like create a chink in the sense that the children or the young people here like are you know not able to have consent and self-direction and then how can I increase it by one thing I know that homework is like controversial but for me it feels like a good thing that's quite like potentially accessible or worth a conversation because the research does support the idea that homework isn't necessarily so constructive and helpful so I think like maybe it's a low hanging fruit. So like, can it be optional? Like, is it already in your school optional? What young people do with their time when they're not even in school or how much is school trying to control their time even not in school? Yeah, that's like one thing you could think about. With uniform, can people personalize? Maybe you have your uniform, but like actually it's encouraged that young people think about how they could make it like more speak of themselves rather than less. You know, you don't have, don't not try and like pull the tablecloth and expect everything to stay on the table. It's like, where is something? It's positive. This isn't supposed, this is a positive opportunity. It's like, oh yeah, like we could actually open this up a little bit. I could open this up a little bit here. And and um, just to add one last thing is around, um, especially for senior leaders and head teachers, like the folk kind of looking in from the bird's eye view. It's a really good question to ask yourself. What are we doing here because we have to? what are we doing here because we always have done it that way? And if it's because we always have done it that way, it's a habit, but it doesn't have to be that way. That is a really good space for where you can make change and where you could move things to become more consent-based and self-directed because you don't have to do it as you are. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's lots of pockets like that in in school life, I think. But I will, yeah, can I just say one last thing that's much grounded in like realism, I suppose? You know, Schools aren't designed for this way of being in them. The design of the buildings doesn't make it easy. The design of the day doesn't make it easy. How they're resourced doesn't make it easy. The ratio of like staff to students doesn't make it easy. There's lots of things which make it harder to bring this culture into the building that is school. The entrenched habits and like, you know, experience in those spaces make it hard. And I think that like, I just wanted to honor that because I think that, you know, going into a mainstream school and looking around you and honestly seeing in the literal fabric of the building, why this is more difficult, why this is hard to give young people more freedom or, you know, like that is a real limit. 
it's not just people like not wanting to make change it, it's in the you know some of these things are really fundamentally like barriers and um yeah so any little thing is like a gift right Absolutely. I completely agree. Have you come across Geraldine Rowe? She she wrote a book called It's Our School, It's Our Time. Uh, she did a PhD on it and she, she was an education psychologist and she got this thing, CDM, collaborative decision making. Mm-hmm. So it's not like it like uh, there was, you asked a really interesting question a moment ago, like, can you impose consent-based education on somebody that's an interesting question but so she the the way that she frames it is that it's around collaborative decision making so we're we're working together that you were talking about partnering with your baby earlier partnering with your class where would you like the number line to be and the kids are like oh we like it to be down here because we want to run our fingers along it those types of things you know there's lots and lots of ways that you can that you can you know include consent in your and collaboration in your decision making yeah and I think, you know, one of the things that I would love to see is young people not being pathologized and blamed for becoming ill in a system that is not good for them. That is so sad when school refuses or, you know, young people who have got school related anxiety, the way the problem is centered in them as somehow being dysfunctional. Those young people, honestly, are the canaries in the mine. They are not, you know, to 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 blame them. Um, as a, a, an evidence of the of the problems in the system is so sad. So uh, yeah, like let's not do that anymore. Do you know what I mean? Well, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so so we've overrun a little bit, but like I, I could have spoken to you for way longer, and I'm sure we will again soon. Um, just as a final, as a parting comment, is there, is there anywhere that people can can uh, find you and your work easily if they want to find out more? Yeah, you can just go to sophiechristoffi.com. Um, I don't know whether I have to spell that out, but you'll find it somehow. If you if you Google consent-based education, my stuff comes up. So you will find me that way. And I'm on Instagram too and on Facebook. So yeah, get in touch. Good stuff. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you, James. It's been good to see you. Thank you.